With that, I'd like to invite you. I hope you brought a Bible. We use our Bibles around here. I grew up in a denomination where you were not encouraged to bring a Bible. We do believe that here, and we encourage it because we believe God has spoken in the words of Scripture, originally in the original Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek, translated into other languages, in our case, English, but we believe these are the very words of God, and the evidence historically, archaeologically, backs that claim up powerfully. Exodus chapter 20, last weekend we started a brand new series on probably one of the most familiar subjects in Western culture, that is the Ten Commandments, sadly one of the most misunderstood aspects in Western culture, and it is amazing how many people can't even name them. I remember, I think it was Jay Leno or somebody went out on the streets and just asked people, name one of the Ten Commandments. You heard everything from freedom of speech to freedom of religion, all kinds of crazy stuff. And so, if you're a parent at home, one of the things I would encourage you to do is have your kids memorize the Ten Commandments, use one of the catechisms that goes through and dissects them a bit. Why is this commandment given? What is the purpose? How is it applied? It is a great discipling tool to use with children. Subtitle of our series is The Pathway to Freedom. Why is this God's pathway to freedom? Because part of the reason the Ten Commandments were given was to protect us. We compared this to guardrails last week on a mountain highway. There's two ways to look at guardrails as you're flying down a mountain uh, on a mountain road in your car. You can look at guardrails as a hindrance to your freedom and maybe you want to fly off the cliff or you can look at guardrails as Becky and I do. We drive a lot in the mountains out west and we look at them as a great source of protection. Thankful that they are there and there's a certain amount of assurance that comes with the guardrails. Hence the same thing with God's law. In, God's, uh, in the Ten Commandments. No surprise, we live in a day of great moral confusion. That's no big news. Moral confusion, both in our culture and increasingly seeping into the church. Let me tell you what that moral confusion is doing to people. It is ruining lives, numbing teenagers, destroying families, and devastating marriages. And in the midst of that moral confusion, the Ten Commandments here offer us a pathway to freedom and to clarity and hope, if we understand why they were given and why they were not given. So the goal of our 10-week series is to look at the Ten Commandments as designed by God to protect us. We come to the second one today, which is don't make any carved images of God. The first commandment was don't worship a false god. Second commandment is don't worship the true God in a false way. It's not just enough to worship the correct God. We are called to make sure we worship him in the way that he has designed to be worshipped. In other words, there's correct ways to worship God and there are incorrect ways to worship the true God. So the second commandment, in essence, is telling us don't reduce God. Refuse to reduce him. And so we're going to dive into this. Our uh, outline every week on the Ten Commandments, and we're doing one commandment a week, is pretty much the same. We first look at the what to make sure we understand what exactly does that commandment say? And then why? Why would God give that particular commandment? How did it make the top 10? Why? And then how? And under the how, there's obviously lots of applications. I try to each week to narrow it down to a few of the most applicable, the most pertinent for us today in American culture. So first of all, let's make sure we understand, as we do each week, what exactly this commandment is. Uh, last week I gave an overview of the Ten Commandments and reminded us they're part of a broader 
body of law called the Mosaic Law given. Those are in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those four books contain what we would call the Mosaic Law, 600 and some commands given by God designed to lead and protect his people. The Ten Commandments are part of that law. Now, some people, in fact, a lot of people, have the misnomer that the Ten Commandments were something you followed in order to get saved in the Old Testament. Oh, yeah, 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 that's Old Testament, and you tried to follow those laws, and you, then God would accept you. The Bible doesn't teach that in any way, shape, or form. In fact, we noted last weekend that in the book of Exodus, for example, there are 19 chapters of salvation and deliverance for God's people. Then the law comes. That's significant. That's the gospel pattern. First salvation, first deliverance, first the blessing, then commands to obey to show that we are truly one of God's. So instead of following, and that's, and that's why God gave them at this point. He didn't give the Ten Commandments, tell his people to follow him, and then deliver them from slavery. Instead, he delivered his people out of Egypt, out of bondage and slavery and oppression. Then he gave them his law. That's the gospel pattern, and it always has been. In other words, law-keeping has nothing to do with being saved. Nothing. Law-keeping, keeping rules, keeping moral rules, trying to be a good moral person, has absolutely nothing to do with being saved. And we're going to see that increasingly as we go through this series. So you ask, well, what's the purpose of God's law then? Why these 600 and some commands? Why these top 10? And we learned last week, there's at least three reasons why God gave his law. And these are clarified both in the Old and especially the New Testament. Those three reasons are, one, that whole body of law, the Mosaic law, but Ten Commandments, two, were given, first of all, to remind us who God is and who we are that he is holy and that we are sinful and wicked and need a savior. The law does that. It acts like a mirror. Mirrors are unforgiving, we said last week. They just reflect what's really there in all its glory. And mirrors have a way of not flattering in the least. That's part of what the law does. It shows us how far we have fallen and who God is and what his standard is. Second reason the Bible says the law was given was actually to help maintain civil order. There are laws about inheritance. There are laws about how to follow certain civil ordinances. There are dietary laws. Those were designed to help keep civil order. That actually was part of why God gave the law. And then there's a third reason God gave his law in the Old Testament, and that is to show God's people, those who really know him, what pleases him and how to find freedom and protection in this life. It has nothing to do with being saved has everything to do with those three reasons. And I went into those in quite a bit of depth last week, and I would encourage you, even if you were here, to go back, review that, and make sure you're reviewing it with your kids because there's so much misunderstanding, again, around the Ten Commandments. Have your kids memorize them and then go through, and even in a catechism with them, the what, the why, and the how of them, and understanding God's law in general. Because it's not just a side thing in the Christian life. Understanding the role of the law in the life of a Christian is foundational for maturity and spiritual growth. With that, that brings us to the what of the second commandment. So let's read it. It's one of the longer commandments. This one and the fourth commandment are the longest. Second and fourth are the longest. The fourth one is about the Sabbath day. We'll get to that in 
two weeks. But today we come to the second commandment. It is contained in verses four, five, and six of Exodus chapter 20. By the way, these are restated in the book of Deuteronomy chapter five. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth below or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I am Yahweh, it's the divine name is used there. I am Yahweh your God, and I am a jealous God. Do you know that one of the names of God is jealous? He actually says that. My name is jealous at one point in the Old Testament. Punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of all those who hate me or disobey. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now before we dive into the what, let me just say, there is some controversy, has been in the history of the church, how to divide up the Ten Commandments. Not sure if you are aware of that or not, but there is. For example, we know there's ten because in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 13, these are called the ten words. In fact, that's what they're called here, just the words that God spoke. But in Deuteronomy 4, it's actually specified there's 10 of them. So somehow, in some way, you, you, you need to end up with 10. Here's how they have differentiated over the years. Protestants and Catholics have tended to number them differently. And I'm not here this morning to be referee, I'm just, but it, it is worth noting. So Catholics typically combine one and two and divide number 10. That's pretty standard, even among a lot of Lutherans, to divide one and two, but especially Roman Catholics and some Orthodox churches like Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, they divide the 10th. Don't covet your neighbor's house. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. They make that two different commands, but they combine the first two. Now, you say, well, you know, why? What's the big deal? Well, fairly or unfairly, I'm not here to comment. I'm just here to give you a little church history. Protestants have claimed that Catholics renumbered the commandments in order to avoid or to justify, I should say, the widespread use of images and relics and crucifixes. And so in order to sort of bury the second commandment, they, the accusation has been that Catholics then buried the second and the first, and then that doesn't highlight it quite as much and it allows them to use crucifixes and images of Christ. Whether that's true or not, it is a long-standing difference. However, the point is, we all believe in the same body of words here, and we all believe there's ten, and the wording of the ten stays the same. So that's what's important. The, uh, the second commandment, what's it say? It's forbidding the use or the making of any image of the true and living God in our worship service, or in, even in our private worship. Even in our private worship, Bible is saying don't chisel, don't craft, don't create any visible image, representation, or tangible image of God. Now, it doesn't forbid religious art. That's a good thing to note, because even in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple, there was a lot of religious art, even replicas of angelic creatures and stuff. So it's not just, it wasn't a, it wasn't a complete forbidding of art or beauty. It was a specific prohibition against making any image of God that was visible. That's, that's the key. 
That's the key. Thomas Watson, one of my favorite preachers, very famous London preacher, Puritan preacher, preached a series on the Ten Commandments back in the 17th century. I like his very short soundbite on the difference between the first commandment and the second commandment. This is what he said. In the first commandment, worshiping a false god is forbidden. We saw that last week. So in, worship, in the first commandment, worshiping a false god is forbidden. In the second commandment, worshiping the true god in a false way is forbidden. So you see the difference there. That's an important difference. That is the first commandment. That's the what? Not that difficult. No images of God, no tangible representations of God, none. Now, why? Let's move to the second thing. Why? Each of the commands is rooted in something about God. Each of the commands wasn't just thrown out arbitrarily by God just to sabotage our fun and joy in life. There's always a very good reason biblically behind a command. What is the why behind this command? And it becomes very clear as you look at this in the flow of the Bible, the why behind this, the danger behind making any kind of an image of God is this. Young people, you with me? Kids, it inevitably reduces God. That's the great danger. Whether it's just an actual literal idol. Becky and I have been in places where there are actual idols. We've been in Hindu temples in Buddhist temples, where we've seen people actually bowing down to little plastic idols and stone idols. Or you make some other kind of image, maybe a Christian church, where you try to represent God in some kind of way. This says none, and it says the reason is when you do that, you are reducing God down to one or two traits or attributes. Let me give you an example that I've, liked, I've enjoyed giving over the years. Imagine somebody... Uh, taking uh, one of your photo albums at home or something where there's lots of pictures of you, and they take one photograph of you doing something remarkably stupid, okay? You know, you're on the beach or family vacation and you're doing something ridiculous and stupid. And there, but there it is, nonetheless, an actual photograph, it's legit, it's of you. And someone who doesn't know you is given that photograph and they fixate on it, and for the next 10 years, never seeing you again, they become convinced they know you from that photograph. Now, what's your response to that? That's nuts. It's whacked. I mean, yeah, is that you? Well, sure, that was you, but that's hardly the totality of you. It's not even close. It doesn't even begin to capture all the different nuances and aspects of your life, correct? That is the danger of an idol. That was the problem with the golden calf that Aaron whipped up when it came to this whole incident in Mount Sinai. That was the great danger of the golden calf. It was designed to sort of represent God's power in delivering the people from Egypt. Okay. But what about his love or kindness or his majesty or his power or his mercy? Golden cow didn't convey any of that. You, you, you can't with, with an image. You can't do that. And that is why, here's a very important principle. Please hear this. I'm going to say it a couple times this morning. In the Bible, when it comes to describing and depicting God, the written word is to take precedence in our worship over visual when it comes to defining God, over visual representations. The written takes precedence over the visual because in the written, we have a chance to describe 
the fuller aspect of who he is. That's just a biblical principle we see. So the why of the second commandment, ladies and gentlemen, young people, it's pretty straightforward. Any attempt to chisel, create any kind of representation of God so that we can see it in any form reduces him, downgrades him, and diminishes his glory. And herein lies the great danger. Here's the great danger. When you reduce God, you inevitably become like the God you worship. That's the great danger. There's a spiritual law that is very clear at work in the Bible that whatever our image of God, our mental image, our mental portrait, or whatever is up on the stage or whatever, any visual or mental representation of God, we inexorably move towards that. That's the great danger of representing him in something visual that we can see. One of the passages I think that drives us home the best is Psalm 115. I encourage you to turn there for just a minute. So I was doing my, some of my spade work this week and study. Psalm 15, one, uh, 115 just came to mind, and especially the first eight verses really connect the dots between a reduced view of God and the danger it represents of us becoming like that reduced vision of God. I will always become like what I worship. You will always become like what you worship. It's said here explicitly in Psalm 115. I'm just going to read through verses 8. 1 to 8. 8 nails it. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. God is majestic and sovereign and answers to no one. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. I mean, this is mocking pagan religion. Ears, but they cannot hear. Noses, but they cannot smell. Of course not. They're carved images made out of stone and wood. Hands, but they cannot feel. Feet, but they can't walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Please notice verse 8. Here's the danger of a reduced God. Here's the danger of an idol. Here's the danger of a distorted mental picture of God. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in him. Young people, kids... And everyone else, whatever your image of God is, mentally, whatever your image of God is, physically, you are slowly, gradually moving towards that image all the time. The question for every human being, I don't care what your worldview here is, I don't care what you think about God, I mean, I do care what you think about God, but it doesn't matter what you think about God in this sense. Whatever your image of God is, you're a worshiper. Every one of us is a worshiper, and we are moving towards what we're worshiping. We're becoming like that thing all the time. It's not, shall I worship or shall I not worship? That's not the question. The question for every single human being on planet Earth is, what will I worship? And my answer to that question, consciously or unconsciously, is determining what I am becoming. You see, that's, that's the biblical principle here. Calvin, John Calvin, in his famous institutes, his systematic theology, had a great phrase, and he said this, the human heart is a factory of idols. 
It's a perpetual idol factory. We're idolaters at heart. All of us are. Nothing can stop you from worshiping. Let me say it that way. Nothing. You're going to worship. I'm going to worship. It's inevitable. Every human soul will find something to love, fixate on, be enslaved to, and obsess over. It may be on a shelf. It may be on a stage. It may be in my wallet. It may be on an altar, or it may be in the mirror, baby. But I'm going to fixate, and I'm going to love something and worship something. And whatever I end up worshiping and becoming enslaved to is going to dramatically shape who I am and who I become. Let me just give a few examples so that we can get a better feel for this, okay? Those who love money, and by the way, when I say some of these examples, most people would never admit, oh yeah, I love money, or I love pleasure, or I love, but a lot of people are worshiping these things. Those who love money, and the Bible has a lot of warnings about the danger of loving money, even for God's people. There are some here this morning who love money. You're not admitting it, but everything around you says that's exactly what you're serving. Those who love money, what does it end up producing? They become increasingly, I'll tell you what, they become increasingly anxious, miserable, stingy, and bitter. It's inevitable because that becomes their God. Jesus gave more warnings about the danger of worshiping money than anything else he warned against. Those who become enslaved to food and alcohol increasingly become, it's producing something, what is it? They increasingly move towards unhealth, being unkept, and disease and death. Those who worship their children, oh yeah, They're good Bible-toting Christians who their kids are everything, okay? We're to love our kids, but they're certainly not to be our gods. If you are worshiping your children and making them foremost in everything, here's what's going to happen. Here's where you're going to be moving towards. Fear, panic, and worry. That's where you're going to move towards. Those who live for sexual pleasure are going to increasingly move towards being fragmented, perverted, and imprisoned in lust and end up in very dark places. Those who are obsessed with their external beauty. Right there, huh? So we often say, look at baby, in the end it's all gonna sag, bag, and drag, but look it. Those obsessed with their physical beauty, and some are, some are here this morning, and that's everything, you would never admit it, but that's, (laughs) let's be honest, for you it's everything. You're going to increasingly move towards becoming gloomy, despairing, and self-absorbed. It's inevitable. Those addicted to social media who are worshiping it, loving it, and it's everything, you're going to get increasingly depressed, distracted, and despondent. You can see how what we worship, what we give ultimate allegiance to, what we're spending most of our time, energy, and money on, we're going to start moving towards that very thing. And those who love the God of the Bible through his son Jesus, you know where they're moving towards? Freedom joy, and hope. That's the difference. You cannot avoid worshiping, and you cannot avoid becoming that which you are worshiping, nor can I. It's inevitable. All right, lastly, the how of this command. Obviously, there's lots of directions we could go here. And so as I prayed over this, worked over this, I found three, I think, of the most important applications, or let me just say three incredibly relevant applications of the second commandment for us today. When I say us, I'm talking to those who know Christ as Lord and Savior. But 
for all of us. Hear this. There's some reasons behind this commandment, and then there are some hows as to how we obey it or not choose to disobey it. So let me, let me walk through three that I think are really relevant right now in American evangelical culture. Number one, the use of a crucifix or a similar image of Jesus, I think, violates second commandment. Now, it's not so much what a crucifix depicts. What is it depicting? The suffering and agony of Jesus on the cross. Is that biblical? Of course it is. It's not what a crucifix is depicting. It's what it leaves out. What's it leave out? Well, it leaves out his glory, his resurrection, his majesty, his ascension, his reign on high, all sorts of stuff. And if I fixate on that one element, I'm going to be missing a huge picture. J.I. Packer, I think, has the best chapter on this in his book, Knowing God, and he has a great sentence that just summarizes this. Quote, the crucifix obscures the glory of Christ. It hides the fact of his deity, his victory on the cross, and his present kingdom. It displays his human weakness, but conceals his divine strength. So you can see that with all the good intention behind it, if I put up an image of Jesus in tremendous agony and suffering and dying, yeah, I'm capturing one aspect, but I'm missing a huge part of my Christology, of my doctrine of Christ, because you can't put it in a visual form. It's impossible. Whatever I capture, I'm leaving a whole bunch of things out. Secondly, I think a second way of how this applies, the second commandment, is this. And the second way we violate it. Distorted mental images of God that dominate us. And these can become every bit as reductionary and idolatrous as an actual idol. In John 4, Jesus said this. If you're going to worship God, you've got to worship him in spirit and truth. It dovetails exactly with the second commandment. It means that I have to approach the true God in the way he's prescribed. And unfortunately, many sit in Bible teaching churches, some are here this morning, who have extremely distorted mental images, extremely reduced and reductionary mental images of who God is. And you know what it's doing? you're moving towards that image. It's reducing your view of who God is and what he can do in your life. Now you say, well, why do people have these distorted mental images of God sitting out? Well, we all do. Why? Because of the, here's some example, the way we were raised, how our father treated us, past teaching and preaching, current preaching and teaching we shouldn't be listening to, past experiences, they all feed into distorted. Some pe- It is sad. Some of us are sitting this morning with, images of God that are very distorted and unbiblical, and it's dominating our life. And the result is I end up with a shriveled God, a reduced God, my, my prayers become feeble, and I'm losing confidence in the almighty God of the Bible who can do the impossible. And pretty soon my prayer life just sort of fizzles and dries up. What kind of a God am I losing confidence in? I'm losing confidence in a powerful God who can rescue us from substance addiction and from destructive habits. I'm losing confidence in a merciful God who can forgive me for all the garbage and junk I've done, who can help me forgive others who have betrayed me and wounded and hurt you. 
I'm losing confidence in, in the lovingness of God as described in the written word to heal broken relationships and heal broken marriages. And I'm losing confidence in a forgiving God who can forgive, help me forgive, help us forgive each other. That's just a few examples. But mental images, grossly distorted mental images of God are in every church. And the only remedy is immersion in God's Word, God-centered books, and biblical community, and sitting under good biblical preaching. That's, that's the only remedy to it. The written has to take precedence over our feelings when it comes to defining God. And so many of us, myself included, regularly flip that around. Lastly, I'm going to speak here a little bit pastorally, gingerly, prophetically here in just a minute. The last way I see, especially in Western culture right now, where we are violating this commandment and reducing God, I think, dramatically, is in man-centered worship services. Sadly, there's been a growing trend in the American church for the last 30, 40 years of moving towards man-centered, self-centered, me-centered worship experiences that end up reducing God. I've sat in these kind of worship services before, and I'll just confess, in our last church, Becky and I participated even at times designing aspects of worship that I now regret. And I mean, I, I say that. Here's the, here's the reality. Every single thing you do in a worship service conveys something about God. And there are intended consequences and unintended consequences of everything we do up here. Uh, from architecture to the equipment we use, instrumentation we use, songs we choose, all of that says something about God. And there has been a trend over the last 30, 40 years of creating increasingly worship services that are man-centered, where pastors, good communicators even, many pastors in our day are promoting a mick deity, a stream-down softened vision of God designed to trim off the excess weight and lighten the demands with things like self-help sermons and fog machines and stand-up comedy and skits and all the rest. And the result is, what's it doing? It produces a church in which many people are weak in their faith and many don't even know God and aren't hearing the gospel. Now, let me add a corrective to this. Are you saying then, Pastor Jay, that everyone has to worship exactly the same way every Sunday? No. One of the beauties of the New Testament, Francis Schaeffer pointed this out, is it gives us a fair amount of freedom when it comes to how worship should look. And that allows the New Testament to be portable into other cultures, whereas the Quran, not so much. New Testament has a flexibility to it so that whether I'm worshiping, and Becky and I have been in some incredibly moving worship services in Bosnia, or Malaysia, or Brazil, or India, or Pakistan, where we've been deeply moved watching, and they're very different, different instrumentation, different music, different languages. But here's the key. The New Testament has a small collection of directives that must be in every church, in every worship service, if it's going to be biblical. Doesn't matter what language the service is in, doesn't matter so much the music style, but there are certain directives in the New Testament like there has to be biblical meaty preaching, there has to be God-centered music, there should be corporate singing, there should be the public reading of Scripture separate from the sermon, and there should be time of prayer and confession. 
Now, how that is ordered and how it looks and, and how long the whole thing lasts, is it an hour, is it four hours? There's lots of room for freedom culturally. But if you start dispensing with the non-negotiable directives, you're going to start reducing God. And you're going to start crafting a church family that are not being fed, not doing biblical worship anymore, and they're going to start moving towards that image of God. For our summons this morning, we always say no summons, no sermon. What is our summons this morning before we come to the Lord's table? Well, here... Unlike any of the other commandments, there is a clear summons right here. There is a threat and there's a promise. So we'll take them in that order. First, there's a threat. And there's no other word really for this than a threat. Verse 5. You shall not bow down to these carved images, these tangible images, or worship them. Why? For I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. And hate being defined biblically as those who disobey him. Now, what's the threat here? Let me unpack this. In other words, uh, behavior has consequences. Not only now, but down the line. Let me put it another way. You never disobey God and his commands in isolation. I never disobey God and his commands in isolation. Even if I think no one else can see me right now, no one else will ever know what I'm doing, God does. And here's a promise from him that I never disobey in isolation. The second command is telling me that my view of God and my patterns of behavior will shape generations to come. Now the key here, this is not so much a word of judgment pronounced on children as it is a warning to parents and grandparents. Parents, grandparents here being reminded of what I would call the domino effects of sinful patterns on their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. Sinful patterns that can bring spiritual damage and destruction to succeeding generations. That's what this threat is about. And if you want to say, well, okay, how's history play that out? Well, I'd say, look at those lands, nations that have given themselves to idolatry and sexual immorality. Look where they end up over the centuries and where the people end up. Look at churches and denominations that have given themselves to false doctrine or dumbed down God or watered down the whole thing. Look where they end up. Look at any society that has given itself to false gods and sinful behavior. And what do you see? You can see the judgment of God passed from generation to generation. That doesn't mean occasionally somebody won't get saved out of that whole mess. They do. That's the grace of God. God has his elect among all peoples. And every once in a while, he will snatch one of his elect out of that whole mess. But as a whole, the trajectory is going over the cliff because of the sins of parents, grandparents, and ancestors. This is not speaking of generational curses or hexes or any of that. It is saying there is a flow to history, there's a domino effect, and nobody sins in isolation, and my behavior affects subsequent generations. What's the promise? That's just as clear. Verse 6, here's the promise. But, love that, but showing love to a thousand generations to those. Now, actually, the Hebrew 
doesn't use the word generations here. So there's a little bit of a misnomer sometimes. It, it, all the Hebrew says is, but showing love to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. There's the promise. That those who love Christ, we know we're not perfect, but those who love Christ, seek to obey him and pass on the faith are gonna have a massive impact on the next generation. We know that Colossians 1.15 teaches that Jesus is the fulfillment of the second commandment. Why? He is the image of the invisible God. You want an image of God? You got Jesus. He's described all through the New Testament. Which means that the way we honor the second commandment today is to repent of our sin, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and show that we're truly saved by our obedience to his commands. And the promise of verse 6 is that when I do this and I'm serious about it, it's going to have a massive impact on my descendants. That is the great promise and the gospel hope of obeying the second commandment. That is the threat, and that is the great promise and the great hope.